National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. A week ago, Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione made the bold move to notify House Speaker Nancy Pelosi she would not be permitted to receive the Holy Eucharist in the San Francisco Archdiocese until she publicly recants her support for abortion. How will this action reverberate beyond Pelosi? Register Senior Editor Jonathan Liedel brings us the story. Then, in light of this week's Solemnity of the Ascension, we turn to another question. Were the disciples sad when Christ ascended into heaven? On this topic, Register blogger John Clark has shared some insights. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register and your host here on Register Radio. This has been a very tough week in the news industry, and in Catholic news in particular. For me, it's always a sad day um, when we have to report on another Catholic being barred from receiving the Holy Eucharist. But on top of that, uh, our nation is mourning with the Texas families who are burying their loved ones after another senseless uh, school shooting. How can anyone make sense of this? I mean, this has just been my the question of of each of us, I think, but also of our newsroom. Um, too often, the the debates are all around policy and finger pointing launches, and and in all of this, we really need uh, to take a step back and to rest in Jesus. And, uh, and that's why I wanted to talk about the ascension and this sadness over where Jesus is now. But we'll turn to that after the break. First, let's talk about Nancy Pelosi, her archbishop, and the Eucharist. And for that, I welcome Jonathan Liedel. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Jeanette. Good to be with you. So, Jonathan, this week you provided analysis of the situation uh, there in San Francisco uh, at ncregister.com. Um, can you provide us a brief summary of what led Archbishop Cordelione, he's the Archbishop of San Francisco, to this moment with Nancy Pelosi? Yeah, absolutely, Jeanette. Well, I think the first thing to make clear, as the Archbishop does in both his letter to Speaker Pelosi, but also to the priests and laity of San Francisco, is that this isn't, uh, it's not coming out of nowhere, right? He's been in conversation with Speaker Pelosi about, uh, you know, her stance on abortion, in, in which contravenes the church's clear moral teaching, and also the fact that she advocates it, advocates for it while citing her Catholic faith. Uh, he's, he's talked about that with her over the years, multiple times. So what really seemed to trigger uh, this move, right, moving away from dialogue and conversation and persuasion to taking this really extraordinary action, um, you know, is what happened in September. And in, in September, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the Texas heartbeat law, the law that bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. Uh, the, U the U.S. Department of Justice had sued, but the Supreme Court upheld it. And at that moment, uh, because of the implications that had also for Roe v. Wade, uh, Speaker Pelosi announced that she would be prioritizing uh, advancing the Women's Health Protection Act, uh, which is a horribly named bill. Uh, it doesn't merely, as some people say, codify Roe v. Wade. Uh, 
but it actually seeks to enshrine into federal law just extreme uh, expansions in abortion access in every state across the country. So that, that was really, that was kind of like an acceleration, right, on, on Nancy Pelosi's part of her advocacy for abortion. And again, she did so while, while citing herself as a devout Catholic. Uh, and so I think for, for Archbishop Cardiglione, uh, that prompted, um, you know, multiple attempts from him in his letters. He notes he tried to contact her five times between September uh, and this month to talk about uh, what she was doing, the, the injustice she was committing, the scandal she was causing. And each time she never got back to him. Her office never responded to him. Uh, and so, yeah, he made made the decision for, for her own good um, and also really for the good of the entire flock entrusted to his care uh, to bar her from receiving communion in the Archdiocese of San Francisco. I want to point out, Jonathan, after that summary, which was really good, that it, it was Pelosi who wasn't responding as the archbishop was, was reaching out. But in the meantime, he did something very pastoral, something that really impressed me. Uh, and that was he started a campaign in his diocese, Roses for Nancy. And, and this was um, signs of prayer. So people would basically uh, drop off at a site, uh, Roses, for a sign of their praying for Nancy Pelosi. I mean, a real effort to get his diocese praying around this situation. I thought that's a beautiful sign of... Um, of just what the church needs to do in response to these uh, situations. It's not simply about a, some, you know, political move or a political statement um, or, or a penal statement. He makes it clear that he is trying to be pastoral and every step of the way um, he, he was signaling or trying to signal that this is a pastoral move for her good, for the good of Nancy Pelosi, who is receiving communion when she is not in communion with the church's teaching, but also for the good of the flock that's influenced by her continual actions. So I, it's, it's really important that we recognize um, that pastoral stance He's not the first, as I understand it, to do this. Um, and, I mean, there, there are other bishops who have, um, have had similar actions and similar conversations with politicians in their diocese. Why is his, in this situation, being hailed as unique? Yeah, one significant dimension of this is that Archbishop Cordelione didn't simply make, uh, you know, a, a kind of public de declaration um, that Nancy Pelosi isn't to receive communion of the archdiocese. He actually has requested, ordered, instructed uh, the priests, the deacons, uh, and even extraordinary ministers of communion um, in the archdiocese of San Francisco uh, that this is the case and that they, they should follow these instructions. So that seems to be one, it's not, we've seen in other places, for instance, in Kansas, uh, when Governor Kathleen Sebelius vetoed a pro-life bill, Archbishop Joseph Nauman publicly told her not to receive communion, but there wasn't as comprehensive uh, as of an ecclesial response in the archdiocese. I think, though, the, the thing that, at least to me, seems most significant uh, is that Nancy Pelosi 
uh, is the Speaker of the U.S. House. So she is third in line to be president, right? right. And she, she, you know, has an incredible platform, an incredible uh, ability to project her, her views and her, um, you know, justifying them with her Catholic faith. And so a lot of people want to want to say, well, you're targeting this person, you know, because they are such a big political figure and you're playing politics. But I think how Archbishop Cordelioni and other people have talked about it have said, no, no, the significance of her prominence means that the, the scandalous witness she's giving as Speaker of the House, as the most prominent Catholic legislator, um, is all the more impactful. It's reaching all the more people. It's confusing more people about what the church actually teaches about abortion. You know, and I don't know if there, if we can establish direct causation between these prominent Catholics who say, you know, who support abortion, citing their faith. But the most recent polling from Pew, which came out about a week ago, found that as, as many as 30%, so one-third of Catholics going to Mass every week, right? Not just Catholic in general, but Catholics go to Mass every Sunday. 30% of them think that abortion should be legal in most or all cases, right? So the bishops have been struggling to deal with this, this uh, inconsistency in our, in our wider understanding of the church's teaching on this issue. And so the scandal caused by uh, prominent people, uh, prominent Catholics in public life like Nancy Pelosi is certainly part of that equation. You've been listening to Register Radio. This is a conversation with Jeanette DeMello and Register correspondent uh, Jonathan Liedel. We're talking about an article Jonathan wrote. It's called Beyond Pelosi, The Wider Implication of the Speaker's Communion Ban. Uh, and Jonathan, you know, as, as you mentioned, um, Corleone's uh, efforts, uh, his deep thoughtfulness over this, and his alerting of the rest of... Um, of, of uh, those who would be administering communion about the reasons for this decision. Um, I, I can't help uh, but, but think that, you know, many of those um, maybe feel relieved <laughs> in a sense that he has, has actually stepped forward because there was kind of this tension over, you know, this knowledge and the bishops constantly saying, uh, you know, you should not be receiving communion, you should not be receiving communion if you are not in communion with the church's teaching. And now he's actually acted. I, I feel like there with, was with some a, a sort of collective sigh of relief that he actually did something. And he himself, in an interview uh, with uh, Joan, uh, Joan Frawley Desmond at the Register site, um, uh, it, it mentions this very thing that so many people would write to to him and ask him um, about this problem, and and he responded uh, that you know eventually after much prayer, fasting, and and struggling with his own conscience that he had to say something. That article is titled "Bishops Have a Conscience That We Also Have to Follow," uh, and that can be found at ncregister.com. What has the response been, Jonathan, from Nancy Pelosi, but also from from others, from bishops and and other Catholic commentators? Well, Nancy Pelosi, according to some reports. Um, 
you know, went ahead on Sunday and received communion, uh, not in San Francisco, but in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown's chapel, which, you know, we'll get into this in a bit, I'm sure. Uh, the question of how far does Archbishop Cordelione's decision extend uh, beyond San Francisco? But that's how she's responded, and she did go on uh, on MSNBC to, to respond to it and, you know, kind of didn't really get at the heart of the question, but, but pointed out, um, you know, that maybe there are other issues where Catholic politicians aren't perfectly consonant with the church's teaching. Um, she was being targeted unfairly. She also attempted to, you know, paint Archbishop Cordelione as a kind of a retrograde because of his opposition to same-sex marriage, which again, of course, is just plain Catholic teaching. So I don't, you know, we can, I think the point is we should continue to fast and pray for her, right? Like it's not right. that this decision has been made and then it's like, okay, let's move on to something else. Probably all the more now, uh, you know, that there should be a, a prayer and a desire to trust to God um, that somehow, somehow she sees the light and somehow her heart can be uh, softened on this and, you know, she can open herself up to the, the truth of Christ and his church. More widely uh, in the church, uh, there have been a, a handful of bishops uh, who have expressed their support for Archbishop Corleone's decision. Perhaps the most important one uh, is Bishop Vassa of Santa Rosa, California. Uh, and I say most important because he, his diocese, Nancy Pelosi, has a second home in his diocese. And so he has supported Archbishop Corleone's decision, and he has said that he will, in fact, uh, you know, be faithful to it uh, in his own diocese. So Nancy Pelosi is not permitted to receive communion in that diocese in California. Another bishop, though, who everyone has been kind of looking to to see what his reaction might be would be Cardinal Wilton Gregory, the Archbishop of the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C., of course, where Nancy Pelosi spends a significant amount of her time. Multiple people in the media, uh, including myself, have reached out to Cardinal Gregory to find out what's going to happen uh, in the Archdiocese of Washington with regards to Speaker Pelosi. Uh, and he didn't respond to me. His office didn't respond to a lot of people. And then we found out it was because, uh, you know, his, the communications team at the Archdiocese of Washington um, is, is acting on... Uh they're, they're basically ignoring press requests. Uh, they accidentally sent an email actually to a reporter that was meant to be shared internally um, that said, we'll ignore this request like the others. So then they did issue a statement that said, uh, Cardinal Gregory uh, has nothing new to say on this because his position uh, on, on giving communion still stands. You might remember that when uh, President Joe Biden was first elected uh, and then you know his residence being therefore then in Washington, D.C., Cardinal Gregory was interviewed on what he thought about the conversation about giving pro-abortion Catholic politicians communion. And he said uh, that even the possibility of threatening to not give someone communion is like bringing a loaded gun to the table. And he wanted to prioritize conversation. And so he wouldn't be refusing communion to anyone. And that is the same stance that now is being taken uh, with regards to Speaker Pelosi. Interestingly enough, it's a bit of a departure 
from the precedent uh, from his predecessor, Cardinal Donald Wuerl, who said that he would respect the decision for any Catholic politician who happens to be in Washington, D.C. for work during the legislative session, he would respect the decision of their local bishop on these kinds of questions, because the local bishop is, in fact, the pastor of this person, and they and their priests are the ones who have the means to have these kinds of pastoral conversations. Uh, so a departure from that kind of logic uh, by Cardinal Wilton Gregory in Washington, D.C. Well, Jonathan, you've really covered this well in an article that I invite our listeners to uh, read at ncregister.com. It's called Beyond Pelosi, The Wider Implication of the Speaker's Communion Ban. In that article, you do talk about... Uh, uh, an act recently uh, from the Holy Father, it was a, a part of his um, changing of canon law, that actually uh, canonists believe will will make, um, uh, it, it kind of gives strength and support to what uh, Archbishop Cordelioni has done. And, and that's really interesting because some would say, hey, this isn't in line with how the Holy Father wishes us to act in these matters. And yet he has spoken very, very strongly about abortion, uh, that it's like hiring a hitman. Um, and he has also made uh, canon law uh, stronger when it regards to correcting uh, scandal and confusion among the faithful. And I think it's very worth reading the last section, especially of your article that kind of hits on this topic. It's, it's quite interesting. I haven't seen that reporting anywhere else. Jonathan, I'm very grateful uh, to have you on radio today to talk about this. I, turn, I ask all our listeners to go to ncregister.com because also our publishers spoke about this in a piece called A New Error. It's the publisher's note from uh, Michael Warsaw. When we come back, we'll turn to a different question, uh, maybe a more hopeful one, and it asks the question, were the disciples sad when Jesus ascended? And this is a conversation with registered blogger John Clark. This is Register Radio. There's more when we return. The first disciples were eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection. Today, the Register is a witness to His presence in our world. Through our reporting, we nourish the minds of the faithful and provide insights into the events of our time through the lens of Catholic teaching. EWTN's National Catholic Register reflects the hope of our Catholic faith, delivering truth and staying above the fray while providing a deeper understanding of Christ's love and mercy alive today. Try it for free to Today and get it delivered to your home, office, or parish. Get six free issues today online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Dear family, let us pray together Mother Angelica's prayer for the United States. Lord God, I ask in all humility that you bless this country as unworthy as we are. Protect it from every evil. Protect it from the enemy. Protect it, Lord, that it may accomplish thy will and keep thy commandments. 
I ask, Lord, with a pleading heart to look down upon us in our unworthiness. Give this country a renewal of devotion to you, to your law, and to your commandments, Lord. Let us be once more a country under you, Lord. May we once more say, in God we trust. Guide us and protect this country from every evil and every harm. Amen. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register. As I mentioned at the start of this show, it's been a hard week in news media. It's painful to cover another mass shooting. It feels like the coverage is always the same. Of course, you know, we write about the particular people involved in the tra- tragedy. We, we write about the Catholic response, the local Catholic response, but very quickly national conversations just turn to policy debates about gun, guns and mudslinging just starts and it's a real, it's a mess. Nothing seems to go anywhere. So my plans this week for radio was to talk to someone who had worked at a parish near another mass shooting site and who at that time saw that their work really transformed uh, their way of doing ministry. Unfortunately, that I couldn't line that up. I couldn't schedule that. So that conversation will be for another time. But then I caught this clever, my eye caught this really clever piece by John Clark, were the apostles sad at the ascension? And you see, I've been feeling sad this week. And, and so I, I feel like, you know, the world has forsaken God. I know that God hasn't forsaken us. So I really wanted to know the answer to John's question in, in this blog piece. So John Clark, welcome. I'm looking forward to what you share with us. Um, John, the disciples seem to have every reason to be sad. Uh, describe what you, you would have felt at that moment. <laughs> well, well, no, that's a great question. And I think that, you know, the reason I sat down to write this um, is that I would have felt, I, I believe I would have felt really sad. So you have your, each of the apostles is with Jesus for three years. And they just get him back at the resurrection. They just get him back. And then 40 days later, uh, he ascends into heaven. And I just thought on a, on a very human level, which you always want to really pay attention to in the Gospels, on a very human level, it seems as though the apostles must have been really sad. So I started doing some research and, you know, reading some of the church fathers. And all of them assure us that the apostles were incredibly happy. And, and why is that? Because Jesus was going to prepare heaven for them. He was also leaving. He also had instituted the Eucharist. So body, blood, soul, and divinity. Jesus is with us. And it's interesting when we talk about him preparing a home for us and why that should make us happy is that, you know, sometimes we, we talk about how sometimes we don't hear enough about hell from the pulpit. That might be true, but I'd probably go more with St. Teresa of Avila. If I remember the story correctly, someone, someone asked St. Teresa of Avila. They said, how should I meditate on hell more? And she said, don't. And I think that's a really interesting perspective because whether or not we hear about hell enough, I, I know that we don't hear about heaven enough. Mm-hmm. After all, heaven is our destiny. And so all of the Gospels, when you look through the Gospels, clearly Jesus spoke about it a lot. Uh, it's certainly somewhere that we want to go. It's somewhere that he's preparing for us. It's interesting that when I was driving uh, to Mass this morning with my uh, t- two of my young daughters, uh, we just we moved to Florida coming up on th- uh, two years ago. We're almost in our, in our third year in Florida. 
And I asked one of my daughters, do you feel at home yet in Florida? And we started talking about that. But you know what it comes down to? Is that heaven is our home. We're not really supposed to feel all that at home. I mean, I love Florida. It's great. But we're not really supposed to feel at home. And I think that the apostles, if they didn't understand that before, they certainly understood it on a sense on Thursday. Jesus was going to prepare a home for them. And I think that that was a cause of great joy. And by the way, it should inspire us with joy and happiness also, because Jesus is preparing a home for us too. Absolutely. And I, I think that's where I was so attracted to what you wrote, because I think, as, as you said, as, as I said, pointed out, they had every reason to feel sad in a very human way. Just like for us, there are many reasons to feel st- disturbed and sad and confused over these moments. What is going to happen in the future? Why were, were these people taken from us? Why is there such... Um, horror in the world, um, you know, acts senselessly done um, that 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 kill innocents, you know, and and so there's so many reasons for us to really um, be sad. <laughs> it's very human. It's very natural. But um, but I think what we learn in this moment is is it precisely what you said. There is a different reality that we need to cling to and that reality is heaven and that Jesus is still with us even though we can't see him. And that was something very new uh, for the disciples. What did, in your research, did you find helped them to understand better that new reality that he was invisible but still powerful? Well, as I say, I think the key part was they realized their destiny. Insofar as they may have realized it in the past, they realized it then. One of the things that I have come to uh, realize, and, and maybe the more you, the Gospels are pretty amazing because so many layers there, right? But, you know, I wonder, too, if there is something that Jesus was trying to tell us about the community of saints. So I actually lost my own father uh, in January of this year. And... It's fun. My father was a carpenter. He was always doing work around the house. He was always, it was interesting because my mom was a librarian. She was always collecting books. <laughs> and my dad was a carpenter. So my mom would get more and more books. My dad would build more shelves to put <laughs> her books in. Exactly. So my dad was just always working around the house, uh, fixing things up. And when Jesus said he was going to prepare a home for us, he talks about his mansions. You know, I, I do, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I do wonder if my dad is part of that preparation. I wonder if my dad is working side by side with St. Joseph right now and, and working on those. And I think in a very real sense, when we think about the communion of saints, one of the great joys we have in that, and it's certainly proper to, to shed a tear, after all, Jesus wept. Mm-hmm. But it's also appropriate to focus on the fact that we, part of our joy in heaven, Aquinas speaks about this, part of our joy in heaven is each other. Uh, when, when, we, when we meet and greet each other in heaven and there's no goodbyes in heaven. And so I wonder if part of the, the preparation of the home involves the, our loved ones. And I, I, you know, I believe that when I, you know, another thing, what my dad and I have written about this, my dad, as poor as we were growing up, my dad always made sure the Christmas lights in the house. And I always thought, you know what? When it's my turn to go to heaven, I'm just going to try to find the house with the Christmas lights because that's where my dad will be. <laughs> so I think we need to focus on that. I really do. I think we need to focus on the, the joy of seeing each other uh, in that state of perfect happiness. 
course. Of course. And you know, also, we have to recognize our part in this and that ascension uh, was the opportunity for the disciples to realize that we need to share this joy and share this knowledge of Christ and share this knowledge of our eternal home with those who don't know it and haven't met it, uh, met him yet, Jesus yet. And so Father Roger Landry has written a piece. It's at, our, at ncregister.com right now. It's titled, The Ascension Takes the Training Wheels Off of Our Faith. A really good read. Go to ncregister.com and you'll find that. And you'll fi find this five-year-old piece by uh, John uh, Clark that I just had to talk about uh, today. And that is, Were the Apostles sad at the ascension remember for more news analysis and commentary to check out the national catholic register online at ncregister.com thanks for joining us on register radio here on ewtn for matthew bunsen and our producer jeff burson i'm Jeanette Demello. until next week god bless you